Welcome to the Startup of the Year podcast, where each episode we showcase exciting new companies from around the world. This podcast is produced by Established, creators of the Startup of the Year program. Established is focused on helping organizations with their innovation, startup, and communication strategies. Welcome back to the Startup of the Year podcast. I'm Frank Gruber, the co-founder and co-CEO of Established, co-founder of Established Ventures, and the team behind the Startup of the Year community and this very podcast. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. And uh, for those of you that are new to the podcast, maybe I met you last week out at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt in San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you being here and finding us over at the podcast. And uh, for those that have been listening to the Startup of the Year podcast for a while, we appreciate you too. And thanks so much for being here again. On this episode, I talk with Nate Dorsky. He's actually the founder of Effectual Ventures. It's a company that helps startups find and accelerate product market fit. Prior to uh, Effectual Ventures, he's actually spent the last decade building an Inc. 5000 company and working with everyone from early stage startups to Fortune 500 companies such as Johnson & Johnson, CVS Health, Quicken Loans, and uh, he helps while well, ideating and bringing new products to the market. And uh, he's also the author of a new book. It's called Decoding the Why, which dives into how social science is uh, driving the next generation of product design and development. So we're going to talk about a product, basically product development a lot today. And I'm excited because we don't talk about it as much as we should. So uh, really cool topic and really interesting uh, guy and background. So can't wait to jump right in. And uh, for our listeners, actually, today, you can grab a copy of his book, uh, Decoding the Why, uh, for free. So simply go to uh, SOTY.link forward slash decoding. I guess it's, again, it's SOTY.link forward slash decoding and enter the code SOTY and uh, your email address and it'll shoot you a copy of his book for free. So check that out and hopefully you find it uh, super helpful and you can read it and follow along with the podcast as we jump right in. Uh, but before we do do that and dive in, uh, we're going to share some some a couple of housekeeping items for the Startup the Year community. First, I want to share that we're hosting an event uh, for the Startup the Year community coming up here on December 13th. It's uh, c- going to conclude our Grow Your Startup series. So for those of you not familiar, we've been doing a bunch of events over the last few months and this will kind of wrap it up for the year. It's a virtual event, which will feature five companies from our community, and they'll be put uh, putting them to a virtual stage in front of investor judges and our global audience. And uh, it'll be a lot of fun and, and should give them, some, give them some great feedback and experience. So looking forward to that. If you're interested in the event and want to apply to be a part of it, just simply uh, go to this link I'm going to share in a minute. Or if you want to register, you can register to be a, an attendee as well. Simply go to SOTY.link forward slash growpitch.2020. Uh, two. And so it's, it's again, it's SOTY.link forward slash grow pitch 2022. Um, you can also, I think, navigate to it from our start of the year page uh, as well. So we'll drop this in the show notes so you can find it more easily, though. We hope you can attend or if you want to pitch, definitely apply right away. All right. And we're also, you know, we want to celebrate and showcase startups in our community. So we're going to continue to do that on this episode. And so the company today is Spotively, which is a community management system that connects an organization's suite of community tools. Um, and it's basically handles a full life cycle of community management from workflow management to community insights and has a number of different bells and whistles. So just to learn more, simply go to spontively.com, S-P-O-N-T-I-V-L-Y.com. Again, spontively.com. All right, now let's jump in and catch up with Nate about uh, behavioral science and how to use it for product development. 
and his new book. All right, so Nate, what what are you doing over at uh, Effectual Ventures? Can you share a little bit more about what you're up to? Of course. So uh, we we work with early stage startups, and how I define that is basically if you are a startup that has a product in market and some users, you don't have to have a lot. Um, helping these startups find or accelerate product market fit. So most of our companies are either pre-seed up to Series A. Perfect. Sounds like our startup through your community. So that's a great fit. Glad you're here mm-hmm. today. And excited to talk to you because you got a book that's uh, fairly new called Decoding the Why. And I uh, started really diving into it and wanted to talk to you more about it because the folks here on our podcast that listen um, may not know everything about product development and kind of dives into the behavioral side. So first off, um, just to set the base, like how did you get started building products just so everyone knows kind of your background? Definitely. So I have a very entrepreneurial background. I've been doing entrepreneurial related things since I can remember. I had my first business in high school. And then uh, coming out of college, I got more interested in uh, web and mobile app development, uh, worked for a few agencies and got my hands into just basically building products for companies. Um, And um, I I love making sense out of chaos and putting together puzzles and building products is very much that. So just the pure, pure curiosity is what keeps me going. I love that. Same same here. I couldn't agree more. And so I wanted to ask you, like when you built those products, what did you notice uh, when you were bringing them to the market and um, kind of maybe led to what you're doing now and, and kind of the book that you wrote? Yeah, definitely. So um, I read a book actually about five or six years ago called Nudge, which is one of the most well-known books in the space of behavioral economics slash behavioral science. And it just really seeks to understand what drives human behavior. And I was reading through the book and given that I had an experience building products, I noticed that some of the concepts they were talking about, I had stumbled across or just learned through trial and error, right? So like paradox of choice is a great example, which is don't give people too many choices. If you build products, you know that providing a user experience or user interface that gives people too many options can be overwhelming and confusing. And what I noticed though, the book went a lot deeper. It talked about all of these other ideas and concepts of what drives human behavior that I wasn't aware of. So then I was like, okay, well, there must be companies that are integrating a lot of this behavioral science into the work that they do. And I went searching and I found no one. And that's where my journey really began. And I started to really understand what drove human behavior and attempted to figure out ways to integrate that into the way that we design and build products. Um, And that started me on my journey to decoding the why, which is the book that I wrote. And then also what I do day to day. Great. And in that book, you talk about your behavior first approach. It's just so everyone on the, on the uh, podcast that, that's listening understands that. What is the behavior first approach and uh, how can you use it? Yeah, so it, it, it really seeks to understand what drives human behavior before you build technology. Um, digital experiences at their core really human experiences. And I think oftentimes when we're building you know products, web and mobile apps, we just jump to building the interface or putting in features that we don't really take the time to really understand what is the behavior that we want to drive and how do we drive that behavior and then come up with features. We're often oriented in a very feature first approach. um, And that's why oftentimes, which is why you see companies that build features and then you deploy them and none of your users use them and you kind of run in circles. That makes sense. So how do you build products and with that in mind, what's, what would you, what would your first step be? Yeah. So the first step is to, do user research. Um, and in my book, I talk about this concept of the say, do I data. Um, you want to conduct qualitative research first, collecting a lot of say data. So 
trying to understand why people think they do what they do. Um, the problem with the say data is that we often aren't aware consciously of what drives our decision making. So a lot of it is uh, inaccurate. We don't do it intentionally, but we make up stories as to why we did something or why we would do why we would do something in the future. Um, but then take that say data and start to map them to the behavioral drivers and the behavioral science. So, for example, um, you know you're building a fintech app and you're asking people to save money and you say, hey, listen, if I built this app. Um, and you subscribe to it, would you save at least 10% of your income every single month? And everyone's going to say yes, right? And then you go into the, the academic literature and you start to understand that actually um, saving money is really hard because we are our present bias. We overweight our present situation versus the future situation. So we have a hard time putting out money for a future instance. And then furthermore, there's this idea of loss aversion where we weigh the losses of something twice as great as a potential gain, right? So if I'm walking down the street and I lose $10, the pain that I feel from losing the $10 actually feels like 20. And you start to understand that even though people are saying one thing, um, that's actually not really going on underneath the hood. And then if you look into the academic literature, you start to understand some of these concepts and then you start to say, okay, well, what are some ways that I can sort of overcome this loss aversion, right? I can overcome this present bias um, and then start to build concepts based on that rather than what people are telling you. And then I mean, it sounds simplistic, it's not this simplistic, but then you basically deploy them and test them and see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, no, that's really interesting about the the pain that you feel from from losing $10 being amplified. Um, you also talked about um, the, something that caught my attention, this idea of the hot hand. Uh, so you hear it often in basketball or, you know, if someone shoots a bunch of, of, of shots in a row, they tend to, to get it to that person again. And I thought that was really interesting because it's, it's kind of an illusion, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a complete illusion. It's a sort of like hot hand fallacy, right? And like, uh, we all eventually regress back towards our mean, right? And in basketball, you see this all the time, if somebody is quote unquote on fire, they keep feeding them the ball, right? Um, and there's a lot of bias built into that too. Uh, you know, when, when you're successful, when I'm successful, it's because of my hard work. Um, when somebody else is successful, it's because of their luck. <laughs> uh, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot sort of packed into that hot hand fallacy and how that plays into to product design. No, that's really interesting. All right. So in the book, you are talking about product mar market fit, and our, our listeners are probably in some cases trying to figure that out. So what would you say to them if you know about product market fit and how they should maybe approach that? Yes, um, I, I will tell you because I work with startups day in and day out. Ooh. One of the biggest mistakes that I see startups make is they create a solution or put a solution in market and they don't really understand the problem that they solve. And then they put the solution in market, it's not getting the traction that they hoped it would get. And they're convinced it's a marketing issue. And they spend a lot of money putting into to marketing. And then they end up in what I call the sort of solution looking for a problem mode. And I would say first and foremost is really understand your the problem that you're trying to solve, the nitty gritty of it, come up with multiple ways to solve that problem and then test those. And then the second biggest mistake is um, their assumption that the solution that they're building is what is needed to solve that problem. And they'll spend six or 12 months and 500,000 to a million dollars building out the first iteration of their solution to only deploy it and then figure out it's actually not resonating with the market. Um, and there are a number of different ways to get pieces of your solution or idea into market really quickly to test and validate whether it actually has resonance in the market. 
No, that makes sense. And, you know, you also talk about a couple different levers to get people to, you know, once you kind of figure out that it is sticking, there's a number of different ways to keep it um, kind of present in people's minds. And you talked about a bunch of different different things. I, we can talk about them kind of different, you know, different portions here, but like rewards being one of them um, and using rewards to kind of build the, that into the product effort. Um, how would you approach that? Like the there's rewards or streaks, which I think is really interesting because I'm a very streaky kind of person. Like <laughs> if you're working out, you try to, I try to keep it consistent and, you know, you break the streak and gosh, it's really easy to fall off the wagon. And I think you even talk about that actually about uh, fitness. So love to get your take on some of these, these tools or, or tactics that people can use to kind of get people's behavior to kind of fall in line with the product that you're building. Yeah. I, it's a really interesting concept. And one of the places I dig into this, in my books around like, what is probably colloquially referred to as this idea of gamification. Um, and I think that when people want to get people to use their app, one of the, one of the things that I often hear is like, let's gamify the experience. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there and why certain gamification models work and other ones don't. And I just want to hit on, on one concept really quickly that I think is really important to understand. Um, when you think about rewards, they're broken down to two key components. So there's intrinsic motivators, which is you are driven to complete a task because of the inherent satisfaction you get from completing that task, right? I run my company. I mean, I make money, obviously, but really what I do it is like innate, innate sense of curiosity. I'm intrinsically motivated. Extrinsic motivators are external rewards, right? Um, you get some sort of badge or you get a reward or you get a dollar for completing some tasks. You're motivated to complete that task because something is being given to you or there's something to achieve externally. And it's really important when you're trying to motivate users to complete an action to understand is the action intrinsically motivated or extrinsically motivated? Because, um, and Daniel Pink actually talks about this in one of his books, if you introduce extrinsic rewards into an intrinsically motivated task, it can actually backfire. Um, and wow. I think you see this a lot in like health apps and fitness apps where like you're trying to provide rewards for 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 some sort of task that should be intrinsically motivated. And that's a really key concept to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is really understanding the mechanics of game design. And I'll give you a, a really quick example of how something as, as interesting as a leaderboard can backfire. So everyone's like, oh, well, let's gamify my app. Like let's build in a leaderboard where we, we sort of rank people and show people in competition against one another. For anyone out there who's ever played Mario Kart, um, one of the things that you notice is when you're playing Mario Kart, if you're ever behind, all of a sudden you get these power-ups, you get mushrooms and these rockets to get you ahead. And there's something built into game design called dynamic game balancing. And the idea is basically if anyone's ever too far ahead or too far behind, the game balances in real time. So you feel like you're always in the race and that drives motivation. And one of the ways that leaderboards can actually backfire is if you're so far ahead or so far behind, you start to lose motivation because you're quote unquote out of the race. And that's just a perfect example of how you can't just take like gamification models and just bake them into your app. You really have to understand the mechanics of what drives behavior, because if you don't, you might actually introduce some type of design concept into your app that actually has the wrong effect that it was intended. That makes sense. And I think in that same regard, you talked about like balancing, right? Dynamic game difficulty balancing or that, I think yes. that's what, yeah, and so that kind of helps level the playing field a little bit to keep people's uh, interests. I guess you could say if they're so they're not totally out <laughs> out of the picture, right. they can kind of get back in it somehow. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. I like that. And there was a couple others too, like with the streaks. Um, if you're streaky and all of a sudden you 
you don't work out in a day or something. There's uh, which app was there's some app that does like streak freezing, right? Yeah, Duolingo. So like streaks right. are great actually tapping back into that concept of loss aversion because right. we we don't like losing stuff. So you build up streaks, right? And the reason you don't break the streak is because you don't want to lose all the streaks you've accumulated. But again, one of the ways that it can backfire is if you miss one day, you're like, oh, I just lost all of that hard work. So Duolingo goes, huh, interesting. Like if we can leverage this idea of dynamic game balancing and streaks, like give you the ability to basically say, hey, listen, if you made a mistake, it's actually okay. You're not out of the game. You can right. freeze your streak. No, that makes sense. And that, that, that should keep people involved a little bit more. Um, okay, so, you know, so let's see, we talked about uh, a couple of different the tools there. Uh, I guess one of the big things underlying, um, I guess, themes, I guess you could say is communications. And there's a lot of different ways to communicate and it obviously impacts behavior. So wanted to talk to you a little bit more about um, maybe some of the things that you've learned or want, wanted people to learn from this book as far as um, how to cater your communications to the people you're trying to build for. Um, I think you use an example of um, Acorn, for example. There was a, you know, there's this weird thing that happens with your your brain when you see a, a $5 a day camp contribution versus a $150 monthly contribution. You might tend to go towards the $5 thinking it's less, but ultimately it's probably similarly priced. So I wanted to just get your take on like, how do you like hone in on that with people and when you're building product? Yeah, so, um framing the way that options are presented or framed can have a big impact on what it is that we decide. The classic example is I always give is like you walk into a grocery store, there's two cartons of ice cream and one is 80% fat free, one is 20% fat. Same yeah. amount of fat content, but the first one sounds attractive, the second one doesn't. Um, and words matter and they matter a lot in the way that things are framed. And it's really important. Um, a lot of times you'll hear in behavioral science and in product design, they'll use something called a loss framing, which is basically instead of framing something as a potential gain, gain you frame it as a potential loss. Um, and this isn't a blanket statement, but in some instances can help drive behavior. Um, so it's really important that even words matter. And one of the examples I give from my book is there was a, um, there was a product that basically was asking people to uh, give some of their, after they pass away, some of their wealth to this nonprofit. And one of the, the pieces that he realized was he was having a big drop off during the application flow. And at first he thought uh, it was because of just the UI UX, like all of us would, right? It must not be easy to complete. And he did some deep dive and some digging and he found out um, there's something called mortality salience, which is anytime somebody mentions anything about death, there's a sort of reaction that you have to avoid any conversation around it. Right. Shut and off. He, Don't talk. We can't talk yeah. about it anymore. No, we're not talking about death. Yeah, right. I get it. Exactly. I think that's, is that the one you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was around giving docs and he, yeah. he changed yeah. it from this death frame language to this idea of leaving your legacy. And that one switch of just a couple words in one of the mm -hmm. questions, yep. um, all of a sudden you saw conversion rates increase, right? And it's, it's like a prime example of, you know, we, we're just so, we're so wired to think that anytime we're having an issue with the product, it's because of the, the UI, right? And this, mm -hmm. this says that there might be actually something on a behavior level that's going on that we're not aware of. Right. And that's just simple words. I mean, the way right. they framed it, like, right. nothing, nothing more. Uh, words matter. And especially when you're building product. All right. So let's talk about storytelling. It's an important part of life business. If you're out pitching your product or, you know, trying to do sales or anything within the business side of, of it, um, you know, 
building your product, you're gonna have to create a, and share a powerful story of why you um, built it and capture your audience. So you talk about storytelling in the book and I would love to get your take on like maybe some tips or things to think about when you're creating that story. Yeah, and I think this goes to the product. It also goes to like pitch decks and investor decks. Um, you know, the way that we think about the world, the way that we make sense of the world is um, is through stories, and uh, that we make decisions, whether we admit it or not, based on emotion a lot of the time, and we use data and numbers to sort of post justify our decision or post rationalize our decision. But there's actually some research that talks about this idea that we actually make the decision first and then we use numbers to justify it. Um, and it, it it is really important that you understand the sort of key building blocks of how stories are built and framed. And I talk about this in my book um, called The Hero's Journey, um, because if you can move somebody from making a decision based on numbers and statistics into sort of more of an emotional state, that's really when you can move people. Um, and you see this a lot um, in startups, specifically early stage startups, where there isn't as much data to prove traction yet. Oftentimes, the people who are able to raise money are the people who are really great storytellers, not necessarily the person who has the best idea or the best product or the best market opportunity. Absolutely. And I think one of the best people that's ever done that in the world um, was from WeWork, right? Like <laughs> um, Adam Newman, right? He's raised probably more than anybody based off of vision and, and things. And obviously he's done, uh, built some big, big companies and had some some things not work out the way as he wanted to, but even more recently raised more. So are there others like him that you've seen or, or heard about that you're like, wow, this is an amazing storyteller? Yes, there's this actually one post on Medium. It's called The Greatest Sales Deck Ever Written. Um, and one of the things that he does, which I thought was fascinating, is instead of painting his product or his offering as the solution, he he paints this future world that has changed dramatically. There's this new state of the world that is very different than today. And what that does is it creates this sort of fear of missing out for investors of the world is changing and I need to be there and I'm gonna be left behind. And then he positions his solution as the vehicle to achieve that new world, right? And it's a really interesting framing around a story and a narrative that isn't around like the product and the success of the product per se, but it frames the narrative and the story around this new world is coming. And if you don't want to get left behind, my product, my vehicle, my, my rocket ship is the only way to get you there. You know, that's great. Uh, we'll have to link that up. What's it, what, it, It's on Medium, you said? Yeah, let me, I got to find, I can't remember, Kratos pitched, I might. Yeah, we'll, we'll check it out. We'll link it We'll link yeah. it in the show notes for, for folks to find it later. Uh, all right, so moving along here, that, that we'd love to check that out. Uh, storytelling is super important. And then obviously, um, body language and even other cues can be really important. And um, this this actually resonated for me because we've been, you know, for a while there, we were using Zoom for a couple of years due to the pandemic. And one of the things that your book says, and I just didn't realize is, you know, eyes matter. <laughs> Your eyes are super important when it comes to communicating and obviously body language too. So wanted to get your take on, you know, while we're doing all these Zoom calls, what are some pe things people could do to, you know, obviously continue to better connect with people. And then obviously in person, what are things people can do from a, you know, using their, their body and eyes to better communicate? Definitely. So a couple things. Number one is, yes, um, eyes hold about 80% of information in regards to our emotional state. So if you actually take a photo and you black, uh, like blank out the entire face and just show the eyes, you can still understand the emotional state of the person. 
So that's a really key uh, piece to hang on. Number two is stories, 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 stories. Like every time I talk about something or a theory or a concept, I always try to use a narrative or a story to highlight the point. It resonates more, people grab onto it. The third piece is, and I actually didn't get about, I didn't get into this about in my book, but there's something called the, the halo effect. Um, and basically what it talks about is the presentation of a product or a service or an item um, how it looks and feels can impact somebody's perception of the quality of that product in a completely different domain, right? So for example, let's say, Frank, that I gave you two identical software products to use, okay? One had a beautiful homepage, right? And the other one had a very blank homepage, and then you use the product. You actually would rate the quality and the experience of the product itself, independent of the homepage, as higher with the one that you saw that was beautifully sort of designed. And this is really important. And there's, this gets back to like the idea that there's actually academic research to uh, back up this idea that like brand actually has a, a, a real impact, right? So if you yeah. think about like a sales deck or a pitch deck, for example, like I cannot tell you, even if people say it doesn't matter how much it actually impacts people's perception of the quality of your startup, yeah. just by having like a polished brand presentation deck. Yep. No, I 100% agree. So obviously design, super important, worth paying for, you know, yes. whether it be website, yes. website design, uh, everything, right? Like everything you're doing with your, your company um, matters from a design perspective, because that is your outward facing kind of, it's your eyeballs, right, of your product. Mm -hmm. And people mm -hmm. are going to read that any way they can to kind of figure out, is this, is this something I want to work with or use or buy or whatever? So that's great. Great advice. Um, okay. So Obviously, the the underarching um, theme in this in this book is behavioral science and kind of the importance of it. And can you share a little bit more about where you see that going with product development in the next, you know, five to 10, 15 years down the road here? Yeah, so I think a few places. I think that, um, you know, as technologies become cheaper and more accessible, uh, companies that are looking to get an edge, there is this whole other side of the equation. You know, when you're building something, the question often is like, how can we make something more sophisticated and how can we make it faster, right? But there's this whole overlooked side of the equation, which is like what drives human behavior. And I think companies that really start to keen on and understand that you see actually a lot of corporations, large companies starting to have behavioral science teams. That's where the edge is going to be. Um, so that's one piece. The other big opportunity that I see this is we're starting to see a lot of web and mobile apps that are focused on really behavior change, right? Helping people to save more money, learn a new skill, um, improve their health and wellness. Um, this combined with the rise of wearables, so Apple watches and whoop bands and aura rings that are able to collect this biometric real-time data and then feed that data back to users in real time, which you're already seeing. The big gap that we're seeing right now is uh, getting people to actually change their behavior based on that information, that's where there's going to be a really big opportunity too. Because mm -hmm. with so much more data available, and this is not just in the wearable space, this is just like period, yeah. what we've been doing is we've just been throwing more data at users. And like, you know, I'm not confused because I work in it every day, but I right. can guarantee you like the average person like doesn't need more numbers and that's not going to change their behavior. So the question becomes like, well, what can you do to change the behavior? Right. That's a great point. At one point, we've got so much information. What do we do? Like, what? It's just overload at this point. I mean, I'm wearing multiple different devices on my, you know, to basically track right. things. I mean, what what is it that we're um, we're going to do with all that data? That's that's super interesting. Yeah, and I think not just from like a wearable perspective, but I guess online as well, and 
and mobile usage, all that kind of stuff. So great point. Uh, we're coming here close on time. So I'm going to kind of wrap it up with a couple questions here. Um, what's, I guess from a, you've been a, a, you know, a founder now and obviously worked for some other organizations as well. Um, what is, you know, what is some best, the best advice you could give to some of the founders out there that are out building new products? Uh, it sounds so simplistic, but I see this mistake so many times is like, get out in front of your users, or your customers as early as possible. Like it amazes me how many times I talk to like first time entrepreneurs or early entrepreneurs, and they've done all of the market research. They've, they've read all the McKinsey reports, but they haven't talked to one customer. Wow. <laughs> like the McKinsey reports are great if you're like IBM and Apple and trying to figure out like what markets you want to attack, but like you're not. Like your your goal is to get from zero to one to five to 10 to 20 to 30 customers. And the only way that you're going to do that the fastest way is like get out in front of customers early and often. Cause I can tell you 90 to 95% of the assumptions that you have that are based on that McKinsey report that you read are going to be wrong. And you want to find out sooner rather than later. Great advice. So get out there and talk to people. Um, find find your customers and, and continue to build yes. build around that. And That's and don't don't talk to people you know. That's the worst thing you can do. My mom, <laughs> she loves me, but I can put anything in front of her and she's gonna tell me it's the greatest idea that she's ever seen. Moms See are awesome can... that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're right. Get get an objective, objective person outside of your mom or family network. Great idea. Exactly. A okay. random person you don't know that is willing to pay for what it is that you're offering. Great. Awesome. All right. So your, your book is out. Where Where's the best place for people to find it? Um, Amazon. Just go to Amazon, Decoding the Why, and grab a copy on Amazon. All right. Great. And then if anyone wanted to connect with you in some way, what's the best place to find you? Uh, Nate at Effectual Events, Ventures, E-F-F-E-C-T-U-A-L, ventures.co.com. All right. Thanks so much for the conversation, Nate. Really appreciate you joining us. Congrats on the book. And uh, hopefully our listeners found it super helpful. And uh, you're out there, you know, building products based on behavior that can help change the world. And uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, please do share it uh, with your network. And uh, obviously, they could even get a free book out of it if they really like reading or want to learn more about behavioral science and things that are kind of tying into building products. And sharing is caring, of course, as well. And uh, that's the episode actually today. So hopefully you found it helpful, interesting. And if you have a startup idea, guess what? Today is the best day to start up. Not tomorrow, not the next day. Today, get it going, get it started. And in doing so, I encourage you to join our community for access to support, expert advice, and all the resources you need to elevate your startup by simply going to startupofyear.com or SOTY.link forward slash apply and join our community today. It's free. There's a lot of uh, benefits and uh, it's a lot of fun too. So until next time, I'm Frank Gruber. Don't forget to hug your, hug your loved ones and a good luck out there starting up. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Startup of the Year podcast. Be sure to subscribe and we'll be back with another episode soon. 